0: chapter 5 of with the anzacs in cairo by guy thornton read by adam bielka this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org chapter 5 evils of cairo it was in the first week of 1915 that i faced the ordeal of seeking to dissuade the soldiers from entering the bad houses in the esbekhaya One night I had been slumming near the bottom of Clot Bay Street when I saw some men, all more or less under the influence of liquor, going down a narrow business street that lies immediately behind the Hotel Bristol. I followed them and, to my great surprise, found that after proceeding along the street for a few hundred yards, they turned to the right and in a minute or two were in the midst of the worst slum, the fish market I had up to then seen. I thus quickly discovered how much greater the task I had set for myself than I had at first anticipated. Instead of one, I had two large districts in which to work. Subsequent research, unfortunately, still further increased the field of my labors. Weekly I discovered fresh houses outside the licensed area, which it behooved me to watch with the view of preventing men from entering if possible. It was a great and pleasant surprise to me to discover that, hateful and loathsome as my work was the men to whom i spoke invariably took my word of warning and counsel in good part i never to use their own expression shoved religion down their throats or preached at them i felt instinctively that it was no use to assume any airs of conscious superiority which to tell the truth i was far from feeling i tried to regard each man as i would a younger brother and a brother who was at that particular moment fighting his best against the terrible stress and strain of a great temptation. To scold a man at such a moment would only tend to exasperate him and consequently do harm instead of good. What he wanted was that word of cheer which goes far to the warming of the heart, which presages victory. I invariably assumed that they were fighting to the best of their ability against defeat and consequent disgrace. God knew, although often it was hidden it from my eyes, the brave struggle so many of them were putting up against the forces of evil without and within. Of course, I made many mistakes, but to the credit of the soldiers be it said that although I must have spoken to thousands, I cannot remember more than two or three instances in which the men were offended. And in each of such instances, they were very, very drunk. One night, during the first week, I went up to an Australian soldier, just as he was entering a house of ill repute, and said to him, Don't you think that this is a good place to be out of? He looked up and down, noted my badge, and then said meaningly, I think so, Captain. He paused, and then resumed, especially for Parsons, laying great emphasis on the last few words. I burst out laughing and replied, You got me that time. Aren't you Irish? He assumed a most pronounced Irish brogue as he replied, Sure am. I am that. Where do you come from? He told me, and we stood at the door, laughing and cracking jokes for a few moments, until the opportunity arrived for me to tell him why I had taken up this work. He then said, I'll do what you say, your reverence. I'll go home and be a good boy. Goodbye, try to be good. <laughs> I laughed and suggested that we should walk together to the station, which we did, and parted the very best of friends. I had another encounter with an Irish lad, who belonged to an English regiment. I happened to be standing at the entrance to one of these houses, outside of which over a hundred men were waiting to enter, and I spoke to each man just as he was about to cross the threshold. In the majority of instances, I was successful in inducing them to desist. When up came this Irish soldier and said, Gob, you're a great priest, anyhow.' "'Why?' "'I'm a Roman Catholic.' "'Are you?' "'Better a good Roman Catholic than a bad Protestant.' He had evidently mistaken me for a Roman Catholic, owing, I suppose, to the fact that I was clean-shaven, but now a dim suspicion of my orthodoxy seemed to flit across his mind, so he queried, "'Are you a Roman Catholic, priest?' "'No,' I replied.' i'm a baptist minister well i'm damned i hope you won't be i said why by god if you're not a priest you're damned near good enough to be one having paid me the highest compliment in his power he left me chuckling over what he had said i have often thanked god for the saving gift of humour and am persuaded that I should not have been able to bear the severe stress and strain of my slum work, as long as I did, had it not been possible, even there, to have occasionally a good laugh. It is impossible to treat men as if they were turned out by machinery, various men demand different methods. Each had his own peculiar individuality. Consequently, I had to use every conceivable means in order to effect my desired purpose. A good joke was often, I found, the best lover. With others, an appeal to their home life often touched a tender chord, as in the following instance. Going down the Diab-Tiab, one of the worst lanes in one of the worst slums of Cairo, I saw immediately in the front of me a bright-faced New Zealander, obviously hailing from one of the country districts. He, evidently acting on a sudden impulse, swung round to the left and entered a vile Berberine house of ill repute. I followed him into the inner room. He apparently thought I was one of his cobbers or companions, for he didn't turn around. I stepped up to him and, laying my hand on his shoulder, said, Look here, my boy. You wouldn't like your people at home to know that you were in a place like this, would you? He looked at me for a moment and recognized me. His eyes fell. Poor lad, he was not more than twenty. He was ashamed of my seeing his tears and said, God knows I wouldn't. The women, of whom there were two in the room, broke out into voluble entreaties, but a sharp word and threatening gesture quickly reduced them to frightened silence. He looked slowly round the tawdry, evil, and filthy room at the black, painted, bedizened creatures, and when I said, Then for God's sake, for your mother's sake, for your own sake, get away from this vile hole! He gladly and willingly assented. We walked together, and when we came down to the Waggal street, he stood still and said, Thank you, Captain. I want to make you a promise. What is it, my lad? I want to promise you that I will never come near this hell again. I thought I could trust myself. I only came because my mates did. I want to make it impossible for me to return to the Esbekaya and so I promise you that I will never go to such a place or near such a quarter again. A very few weeks elapsed before this boy came late one evening into my tent and yielded himself to the one who alone could save and keep. The next morning he wrote to his mother, telling her that he had done so, and, with a glad smile, came up to me as I sat at the YMCA table, and, flinging the letter into the letter box, said, That will tell them what they have longed and prayed for more than anything else. His afterlife attested to the reality of the change he professed. It was, as may easily be imagined, no easy matter to dissuade men when they were sober. But I had to resort to all sorts of ruses to prevent intoxicated men from entering these vile houses. Many a time I have spent a full half hour talking and arguing, on some other subject, of course, with semi-intoxicated men, until I was able to rush them down to the station or tram, assuming, I am afraid, a greater fear than I really felt, lest they should miss their train or tram or consequently spend their night in the guard room, and, the following morning, receive from the O.C. that military panacea for all ills, C.B., which is not, as the non-military person might be disposed to imagine, an award for merit, but on the other hand a reward for demerit, which entails confinement to barracks. One night, I'd played this, I trust, allowable trick, and had managed to persuade about six half-drunks of the absolute necessity of hurrying home to avoid punishment. Had got them on the Clot Bay tram, when one of them, who had just enough wit left to perceive that he and his companions had been outwitted, shook his forefinger solemnly before my face and said, Oh, yes, I'm drunk, but not too damn drunk to know that I've been did-did with that blamed word. Ah, I've got it diddled, and you, Captain, for all you look so blessed innocent, is the bloke that's did-did-diddled us. And all the way to camp, he gloated over the discomfiture of his fooled cobbers. Those who have had personal knowledge of the slums of London, Paris, Berlin, Naples, New York, Buenos Aires, and San Francisco have assured me that the moral condition of Cairo is not worse than in those cities. But when I have questioned them as to whether that solicitation, which is so open and so shameless in Cairo, is permitted in any of the above-mentioned cities, they have one and all admitted that in that respect, Cairo possessed an unenviable preeminence. The Wagal Burka is a street which lies in close proximity to fashionable hotels like Shepherds and the Continental. In it, the appalling scenes of moral degradation can be witnessed in the broad light of day. Nearly all the houses in it are occupied by licensed women. Nearly every window has a balcony, and since many of the houses are three-storied, a large number, sometimes nearly and often over twenty women, may be seen in one house, leaning over the balconies in every stage of undress, shouting out their foul invitations to passers-by. This street has become one of the show places of Cairo, and any afternoon after 4 p.m. and evening, thousands of soldiers promenade the street beneath, gazing at and passing remarks upon these shameless creatures. Unhappily, it became the custom for the older resident soldiers to take their newly arrived comrades to view this hideous exhibition of unblushing depravity. The result is obvious. Many men who had no intention of falling became habituated to the foul and suggestive sights, and, as Pope says, Vice is the monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. Yet, seen too oft, familiar with her face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. So, many fell, and fell grievously. Unhappily, the street is but one of the many where similar, if not worse, sights may be seen in broad daylight. For obvious reasons, I cannot give in detail descriptions of the incredible sights which not only I, but thousands of young soldiers, have witnessed. One Saturday, between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m., I piloted Colonel C.E.R. Mackesy. O.C. of my regiment, the Auckland Mounted Rifles, through these districts, and he can confirm the fact of the unmentionable sights which we on that occasion witnessed. The actors in this indescribable scene were, without exception, licensed women. Temptation will exist as long as this present age endures. I doubt whether it would be to the advantage of mankind that it should cease, but normal temptation is one thing, abnormal temptation another. The one is essential to goodness, the other destructive of morality. I venture to say that the particular temptations of which I dare do no more than hint, permitted in Cairo, are such as no government should tolerate for a day. Throughout Australia and New Zealand, there has been for some time a rapidly increasing dissatisfaction that our men should be exposed to these all but overwhelming sensual temptations. I take this extract from a letter I received from a lady in South Australia she says we colonials have a right to demand that our men who have shown such marvellous patriotism should be protected from such extraordinary temptations as prevail in cairo and to a lesser degree in alexandria is the burden of their cry no reason save a strategic one can justify the placing of the camps so near to the great cities the loss in numbers from disease will if ever published astonish the world I desire, once again, to emphasize that when one knows firsthand the real magnitude of the sensualities of Cairo, the marvel is that such a large proportion of our soldiers escaped unscathed. I have been compelled to hint at certain things, but no hints, however strong, can convey to a non-resident any real sense of the full enormity of the iniquities of Egypt. End of chapter 5